You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. What can the world learn from one of Britain's worst corporate miscarriages of justice? Why does Italy keep playing host to Russian-sponsored events? And why do Californians want us all to pick up a pen? I'm Emma Nelson and the Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests Lizette Raymer and Robin Lustig will join me to talk about the day's big stories, including the environmental impact of waste in space and we learn about the origins of the musical genre two-tone. So stay tuned. All that and more is coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. And I'm delighted to say that joining me in the studio is Lizette Raymer, who's Europe correspondent at News Hub, and also Robin Lustig, journalist and broadcaster and former presenter of The World Tonight on BBC Radio 4. Very good afternoon. Very good evening to you. And welcome to an incredibly warm studio, not least because it is incredibly cold outside. It's that moment in, in a London winter when you just think, here we go. Yes, I'm slightly slightly regretting my 100% cashmere. It looks marvellous. <laughs> it's it looks, very warm. It's very, very warm. It? <laughs> Saves us on paying for a sauna. So if Lizette, is, if Lizette goes a little bit, well, you won't be able to tell if you're listening, but Lizette goes a bit pink and stops talking. Starts Robin, you, my words. Robin, you're in charge of first aid. Oh, um, right, okay. How have our weeks been? Where are we now, on Tuesday? Yeah, cold, but just getting back into the swing of things, really. I've been on a little Christmas break, so this is the the, the grand return to 2024 gets does started. Does news kind of stop over Christmas? News really? doesn't stop. Uh, we take a gamble and we fingers crossed that we'll be able to survive. We are always around and we can cover it, but the New Zealand team just kind of helps us out. And do you have sort of a few rules and regulations that you have to abide by, like don't go Don't go certain too places. Far, don't do anything Just too always silly. Always have the phone on loud. Yeah. yeah I've okay. learned pretty much whenever I plan an overseas holiday, something terrible happens and it's cancelled. So okay. it became almost a curse. So we've stayed very close to London. It so always used to be the case that absolutely nothing happened between Christmas and New Year. There was 10 days of absolute nothing. It doesn't. It's not the case anymore. There is often a flood now. News, oh yeah, a flood. Generally there have been floods, even Storms. whether it's man-made, climate-made, burst yep. water pipe. There is always scope for a flood. Always scope for a flood. Okay. Let's uh, look at what the news has been covering in the last few days and hours. Um, And you you know when a news story is of national and indeed international importance when it's turned into a television drama. Well, here in the United Kingdom, the last few nights television has been the compelling tale of hundreds of post office workers who were wrongly convicted of cheating the organisation system out of hundreds of thousands of pounds. The fault actually lay within the accounting software itself, but... All the claims were ignored and several people ended up being jailed and many financially ruined. Um, Robin, you have seen this television drama, which is an incredibly vivid portrayal of an almost incredible story. It is. And what is so remarkable about it is that the story has been reported here in the UK for many, many years, but it never really broke through until it became a drama. And it it is quite interesting, I think, for us as journalists to reflect on why, when we report something as fact, 
it doesn't actually have as much impact as when a dramatist dramatizes it. But yeah, it has broken through. It is an absolutely appalling scandal. It's being described as the worst miscarriage of justice in British legal history. Literally, hundreds of people prosecuted, hundreds of people convicted of theft, of fraud, and as far as we know, nearly all of those convictions were wrong. Um, and Lizette, you have been reporting it, not in any great amount, but enough to, to the New Zealand press. So were you asked to write about it or did you call this one in and say this, there's this crazy story that's coming out of the United Kingdom? Because of the nature of the time zones, it's usually us on this side of the world that bring it to the attention of New Zealand when they wake up. So it was something that obviously we saw as a big headline news and then you naturally bring that to the attention of the producers when they get into the office. But I think for New Zealanders, they probably don't understand the nitty-gritty and want to go into deep, dark detail. But broadly speaking, the headline is one of those ones that makes you sit up and think, what on earth? How is that even possible? And then you couldn't script that, which I guess is why it's making such a compelling television programme and then it's put all of this energy now into re reigniting the conversation and getting some justice for these people because it's just such a compelling watch. It doesn't seem real and that's why New Zealanders on the other side of the world have sat up and paid attention and, and have some level of interest in this. It does have the international cut through, doesn't it? Because it has all the elements of an incredibly strong story. It it has a relevance because we all have been to a post office at some point in our lives or we have a small shop in a community which are generally run by good members of that village or that town. Um, It's incredibly unusual. It addresses so many difficult areas, but also at the end of the day, it's about people. And it is possibly the most human story that you can imagine. It is about people, but it's also about computers. And I think one of the reasons why it really has struck a chord with so many people, both in this country and elsewhere, is that we all deal with computers and we all swear at computers and we all know that computer software is not perfect. And increasingly, uh, we've got artificial intelligence now becoming more and more a part of everyday life. I think a lot of us worry about what happens when these computers go wrong. And this story shows us what happens. There was a glitch in the software and it resulted in hundreds of people's lives being ruined and nobody being prepared to take responsibility. Because the glitch in the system made it appear that the postal workers had been actively taking thousands of pounds out of the tills. Every day, some of these computers in these post offices showed a discrepancy in the balance and the implication was that the post office workers were taking the money themselves and both the post office management and the computer software company refused to accept that there could be any other explanation other than that these were dishonest people. Is that natural self doubt that you get when you're in front of a computer? I think someone once referred to it as EIC, error in chair. (laughs) <laughs> that you ultimately you automatically think that you got it wrong, which is arguably the the thing that will have resonate across anybody who's ever picked up a computer. Yeah, I think to be fair, it probably depends what generation you're from. I think a lot of people just are deeply frustrated with technology on a daily basis and want to throw it out the window and put all the blame on it. And just adding to what you said, I think it's that contrast between a lot of people are so or do get so fed up and frustrated with technology and on the other hand have a real fondness for their posties and in New Zealand in particular I think this is why the Kiwis maybe resonate with the story is there is a 
especially in the rural areas, a real connection with the people that drop off their mail and look after their mail and make sure it gets to them. And so the idea that something like this could be pinned on people who are usually seen as quite stand-up members of the community and quite well-known for many years by a particular family, that then they could be accused of something like theft. And then on this scale where all of a sudden hundreds of people seem to have been guilty of corruption all of this all of a sudden that contrast i think is also something that has really resonated with people and got them worked up. Doing little harm, these people who found themselves in a, in, in a terrible terrible mess. Uh, Robin I'm, I'm interested to see, to see how this frames the United Kingdom because okay we have the the universal issue of trying to make a computer work and and you know the the, the small guy against against the the big organization but when you have the former boss of the post office who has spent I don't know how many days resisting handing back. I think she was ordered, um, given a CBE, and that's sort of a national reward. Oh, 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 but she was given an honour even after this story became known. That's the extraordinary thing. She was given you know, a gong in 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 the honours, uh, even though lots of people knew that there had been something seriously wrong while she was in charge of the post office. So does it undermine um, the perception of the United Kingdom that you have honours given out to people who? Have been have have sort of presided over a major problem, and also the fact that it's taken so long to go to court, and also the fact that one would assume that the British judicial system is something that the whole world would hopefully look up to. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that I've heard a couple of people have said to me, including my own family members, is everybody on the the New Zealand perspective views the UK as having a lot of checks and balances, having a lot of red tape, infuriatingly so. Sometimes when we come over here trying to set up a bank account or just get something very simple organised, it's very complicated, but done with the idea of we want to do everything properly and we want to make sure that nothing goes astray, whereas in New Zealand it's a little bit more willy-nilly and we go with the flow. So I think when something like this comes up, people say, well, is it even the case that they're checking things properly and how on earth can something like this happen in a country that really prouds itself, or prides itself on that? Well, we didn't have to be careful out. about mythologising the British justice system. <laughs> this isn't the first miscarriage of justice there's been in the United Kingdom. I mean, one can go back over many, many years. One can go back all to when uh, there was still capital punishment in the UK and it was not unknown for people to be hanged for murder and then later found to have been completely innocent. So the British justice system has never been perfect. I think the scandal about this has that it has taken so long for the political class to wake up to the fact that there was something seriously wrong, both in the post office and in the court system, which resulted in so many people suffering for so long. And it's a drama, a TV drama, that has finally made the difference. It has. It will be syndicated around the world, I imagine. Now, let's head to Italy, because the mayor of the town of Modena has cancelled an event that had been organised by the region's Russian Cultural Association. The event was billed as an exhibition and conference called Mariupol, Rebirth After the War. And among those expected to attend was a Russian consul general. He described the gathering as an integral part of the Russian Federation against the Kyiv Union. Um, Lizette, one wonders who took the booking for this and how it got through. Because this is a local event in a local town hall. I mean, a Modena is no small town. But for the fact that someone thought, I haven't paid any attention to what's been happening since February 2022, let's just push this one through. Yeah, and originally, I think when they looked at it, they 
changed the ruling so that it was just a ticketed event so that only certain people could get in rather than just Joe Bloggs being exposed to this sort of conference. But I think even, as you say, the idea that something like this that was going to project this narrative and spread it around this community, this city, that that was even remotely approved is mind-boggling to me. It would never, ever happen in New Zealand at the moment. I just know it. Like, it just would never get across the line, even if it was your standard community hall receptionist that took that booking, although I would imagine it had to go a bit further up than that. There's nobody in New Zealand who admires President Putin? (laughs) There's just no way in this climate, with all of the news headlines, that someone wouldn't flag that as potentially an issue. We're sort of spotting a pattern here for the programme that each item that we've been discussing is how on earth did that happen? What not with the post office scandal, but also with this. Um, With this, Robin, there is a, a wider question that's being asked about the fact that this isn't an isolated booking. There are there are reports of several events, not just planned in Modena, but right across Italy, which um, is being said. You know, Russian propagandists are are, are being um, are being allowed. Um, not necessarily. We don't know if they're encouraged or not, but they can stand up and speak. I think the simplest way of explaining what's going on is is by saying just this. Uh, Neo-fascists tend to like other neo-fascists. There are neo-fascists in Italy. If we regard President Putin as a neo-fascist, then he has uh, fans in Italy, as indeed elsewhere. You can look at uh, Marine Le Pen in France. You can look at the AFD in Germany. You can look at Viktor Orban in Hungary. There are plenty of people throughout Europe who actually agree with President Putin. What was going on in Italy, I think, and what is also going on elsewhere, is that the Russians are very carefully creating a network of sympathisers and trying to push out their propaganda and their narrative. As you say, this particular meeting was designed to uh, portray the Russian view of what has been happening in Ukraine and push their point of view. I'm sure it wasn't the first such meeting and I'm sure it won't be the last. And it's, it's a, the, By all accounts, the Italian-Russian connection goes back, what, post-World War II, when you had sort of the strength of the Communist Party in Italy, which still has very strong ties, um, and obviously communism in Russia, but also, as you mentioned as well, Populism. I mean, one only needs to recall the pictures of Putin and Berlusconi Absolutely. to know that 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 connection is is runs deep. And those who follow Berlusconi and supporters of Berlusconi will arguably have you know a, a recognition in in some characters who other countries would say absolutely not at all. But let's not forget, Italy is also the country of Benito Mussolini. Um, I lived and worked in Italy many many years ago uh, during the 1970s when there was a constant spate of terrorist attacks carried out by neo-fascists. They killed dozens of people. Um, it's not unknown. They are still there. It's I think a smaller section of the Italian population than used to be the case. But uh, Putin certainly is taking advantage of it. He has many fans among people on the extreme right, as I say, throughout Europe and indeed beyond Europe. I mean, look at uh, ex-President Trump in the United States was one of Mr. Putin's greatest uh, admirers. I think that there was a latest study out and it showed that Italy had the biggest support for or sympathy for Putin and the Russian people out of the EU. I think it was something like 30% could 
appreciate the Russian position in this war, which is pretty staggering compared to other countries and what that perspective would be. And I think you're right, it's come from leaders over the years who have held that that similar position and let that seep into the community, that, that now, you know, up to Berlusconi's death, he was already putting blame on, still putting blame on Zelensky, saying he wouldn't take a meeting with him, saying that it was partly his fault that this war had happened, saying that some decent people should be in charge of Kiev. So that wasn't all that long ago that Italians were hearing that and a lot of them taking it on board. Does this become an issue not of local or regional importance, but of national importance? Because I think that the Ukrainian embassy in Rome has said... um, this is a Russian provocation. I mean, they are clearly furious about this. But this does shine the spotlight on, on, the, on the wider approach of the Italian government, surely. All major countries try to uh, push out their own version of world events. Um, the UK, France, Germany all have their sort of cultural institutes which they establish around the world to try to... Uh, improve their reputation around the world. There's the British Council, there's the Alliance Francaise, there's the Goethe Institute, uh, the Chinese have uh, Copernicus Institutes. Uh, everybody does it. Um, as, as we've already discussed, Italy has a bedrock of people who are naturally sympathetic to the Russian worldview. And as far as I can see, what was uh, being planned in Modena was part of that Russian propaganda effort. Thank you for that. You're listening to the Monocle Daily with me, Emma Nelson. Now, sending rockets into space is generally seen as something to celebrate. A logistical success, a national triumph, a victory against the odds. Nobody died. But while the likes of India and the private company SpaceX have been blasting off, there's been a growing awareness that it's getting not only quite busy up there, but it's also getting rather messy too. How bad is it up there? Who's, I, I haven't checked recently, but I imagine it's getting quite, quite, slap, quite sloppy. There's an awful lot of rubbish up there, I think, now, isn't there? Space debris. Yeah, and I think the whole the whole problem with this is that the space development and progression is moving faster than the science around the damage is. And isn't that the story of the world, really, in general, that so often humans are out there being innovative and pushing the boundaries and trying to go bigger and explore more and invent something new and, and cover incredible ground? But then we don't realise quite what impact we're having. It's the same with, I guess, cars, you could say, all these years on. We're realising the damage that they've had. And the same, I think, will be said of space travel, that it is going to have a huge impact on the climate. And already when you look at the early studies, and they are just early, trying to determine just how much damage it is having, the initial indication is that it is going to be hugely damaging to the atmosphere. And I think one of the studies that I was reading about today said that a rocket had 500 times the impact of the likes of an aeroplane on the atmosphere and, and and the pollution up there. So even just that alone is pretty staggering. I suppose the assumption is that there's an awful lot of nothing up there, so who cares if you pollute it a tiny bit? I think what's quite astonishing is that SpaceX, um, the, the the private company that's sending rockets up, isn't talking about it, but Amazon and Utelsat, OneWeb, they're companies with th- these, these satellites, what they call mega constellations. So they are committed to sustainable operations. Now, that, to me, is one of those greenwashing words. It sounds one of those lovely things that 75 people and a lawyer have sat down and and written in a PR session. What worries me about this is that there's huge amounts of money to be made. 
uh, in outer space. There is huge amounts of money to be made by whoever manages to start exploiting the minerals that exist both on the moon and further out in space. In order to regulate what is done outside our immediate orbit is going to be very, very difficult. There is, in fact, a United Nations Space Agency, but the United Nations, alas, is so ineffective these days that it's quite hard to see that it would have any authority to say to governments and private corporations, you can't do this, we're going to have to restrict the amount of activity that goes on out in space. And of course, if you start to say, well, it's your problem to clean it up, it's your responsibility, then people will say, well, if it's my responsibility to look look after it, it is mine. I think, yeah, and I think it's frustrating, at least from my perspective, just as as a member of the world, that there is so much discussion about climate change. There is so much effort that is being done on a daily basis, even just recycling and buying mindfully. We're all making such an effort to try and prevent climate change. And then you've got this huge industry that is booming, that is completely wiping away all of our solid efforts in an instant. We don't even really know the damage they're doing. And I find that incredibly frustrating. It's that that gap again, isn't it, between how relevant is this story to me? That, okay, it's happening up there. It's got nothing to do with me. It's just some crazy people with rockets. But actually, these rockets are sending up the satellites, which help us get from A to B, get broadband, basically function in 2024. That's exactly right. And I think we don't make that connection, do we? We occasionally see pictures on our television screens of rockets blasting off, burning up thousands of tonnes of fossil fuels before they leave the Earth's atmosphere. We think, oh, that can't be good. But then we use GPS systems, we use 4G mobile Uh, phone systems. We use broadband, of course, in our everyday lives. These two things are connected. There are thousands of satellites up there enabling us to do what we do, and they've all been put there by rockets. And as a result, nobody really wants to give this thing up. This is the trouble. We're all used to what we have now, and being told we can't do something anymore because of the environment is really hard to swallow. Yeah, but it still needs to be a conversation at the very least, and a talk about what sort of regulation should be or could be put in place to make sure that we're at least stemming the flow of damage or aware of what damage we're doing or what cost we're paying. Yeah, I think regulation is the key issue. We're not saying you can't have this, we're going to ban all rockets from now on. No, that's not the alternative. The alternative is you have some system of control, of licensing, of regulation, so that somebody can keep an eye on how much of this is going on and what damage it's doing. I wonder whether we need to regulate a few egos as well, because when people go up into space, it's generally sort of the Jeff Bezos and the sort of like the uber-powerful, the, the, the Elon quite Musks. Aren't they? Well, exactly. Mm. And you know, one gets the impression that once they've done the Earth, then they're going to have a go at the, at the sky. So I don't but know. But if somebody I, I, offered you a free ticket, would you take it? No, I'd sell it to Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> would you not go? There's I would go. See, I would go. No, actually, I no, go. I would. I would go. Are we going? Go. Yeah, but we've just had a five-minute conversation about why we, why we shouldn't go. So <laughs> exactly. what are we going we're all to do? Are we going, are we going up or are we not? I'm going. I'm free going. ticket. Elon, going. if you're listening, there's three people in here who are... Yeah, we're up for it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Strap us in, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let's Monocle he- Daily comes to you from outer space. That would be great, Gosh, I'll tune into that as well. We'd have to get really long extension cables for the headphones. Anyway, um, I wonder if a signal will go up for the microphone. Yes, it'll be absolutely fine. Let's head back to Earth and to something that I wish I could do, which is write. To not only be able to type, but to actually write a sentence... 
on a piece of paper that another human being can understand. Um, but I, like almost every other child on this earth, was, was taught when I was at school this thing called joined-up handwriting or cursive handwriting. It's a skill um, which I think the older you get, you lose, but some uh, sages in California are saying it's about time that we pick up the pen again and this should be made a priority in certain schools or in schools in general. Um, how good is your handwriting? Very bad now <laughs> because, uh, well, it was never great, to be honest, but I don't use it. I occasionally sign a letter. If I've, put, if I've written a letter on my computer, I print it out and I sign it. I occasionally make a shopping list on a scrap of paper. More often, I just make notes on my phone. Uh, the last time I wrote a letter, I still handwrite letters of condolence. But apart from that, uh-uh. How about you, Lizette? Yeah, I'm very embarrassed about my handwriting and how often I use it. In fact, I find now, even when I'm writing, because I'm similar to you, I always write a card by hand, whether it's a celebratory one or, or a letter, a message of condolence. I always write it by hand because it feels more personal. Yeah. But I always get cramp in my hand by the end of it, you know, if I'm because I'm trying so hard to make sure that it looks nice and that's not supernatural to me anymore and because I'm just not often writing a whole paragraph of message by hand. I get my 11-year-old to do the writing for me if I have oh, something so to be worse. written. It's even better because he has been taught cursive writing at school and his writing is marvellous at the moment because he thinks he actually thinks it's a good thing. Well, good, moment. he's still learning because even when I went to broadcasting school, so my uni years, we... Um, we were taught shorthand, which is, you know, you're writing by hand with a pen and paper and the, the idea that a journalist would need to be taking notes quickly on a notepad. And then by the second year of my course, they had stopped shorthand and they had brought in a typing requirement instead because they had identified that times were changing and we'd actually need to prioritise our speed on a keyboard over our speed on a notepad and pen, which I thought at the time was really sad because I was nostalgic about shorthand and I didn't want it to die. And I think it's a similar idea with the handwriting. Is it feels like you've lost something if you can't handwrite something nicely. But the reality is we just barely ever use it anymore. It's that commitment to a thought as well, isn't it? That once you've written it down, you can't press the delete button. But in uh, California, they're now making learning cursive handwriting the law in in primary schools because there is an association between um, obviously in terms of being presentable to the outside world you have to sign things as you do you do Robin but there's a cognitive connection between your ability to learn and your and, and the physical process of writing now at, at monocle up on the editorial floor Everybody has a notebook. So I sort of exist in a world which doesn't think this is out of the ordinary at all. But the fact is, is that if there is a, a, a definite benefit to us learning to write again, because that is what many of us have to do, surely it, it, it should be prioritised. I wonder how robust that evidence is, you know. I mean, I certainly believe that if I write something down, I am more likely to remember it. Absolutely. Even without referring to what I have written down. But I wonder whether it is really true that the act of writing it with a pen on paper enables me to remember more than were I to make a note on my mobile phone or on my laptop computer. I sort of have my doubts. When uh, everybody was taught to write... There were some people who thought that this was uh, an unnecessary 
uh, luxury for children who would never be asked to do anything more than work in a mine or, or dig roads. Uh, why should they have to write? They could sign their name with an X. Well, we've moved beyond that. I mean, I think it's essential, of course, that every child should be able to read and write. Should they be able to write joined-up writing rather than separate writing? I'm not sure. It's quite... Flash, though, and it's almost associated that when you wrote in joined up writing, you were either posh or you were doing it for best. Yeah, it seems a little bit luxurious, I think, to be able to do cursive. I don't know if that needs to be in law. Isn't that a shame that it's a luxury? But I wonder whether this is more, more con- this is more examining the, the general purpose of education. I mean, just throwing this out massively now, that we don't need to remember things anymore. We don't need to take exams to rote learn or to do maths because we have the Everything's internet. Googleable. Everything is Googleable. I even think, just going off what you were saying, when I um, am about to do a live cross, if it's something that I have time to prepare for, I will always write it out by hand because I remember the details better than if I were to type it on my phone or on a computer. So that is definitely, I don't know what it is about it, but it's definitely doing something for my brain in the way I can ingest information and then retain it. I always feel as if I know where on the page the point that I need to look down to is going to be there. If you've got your three points that you've got to make, whereas if you're fiddling around with the phone, it's going to switch off while you're live on air. That's not Not helpful. Your battery might go. Or you might have typed something absolutely nonsensical. I mean, for years and years and years of reporting, Robin, when you're out and about... If you there didn't was no have such your... thing no, as a no mobile phone thing. or a laptop computer. <laughs> I did everything by hand. I mean, I'm of the generation, which, you know, the pre-computer generation. So if I went to a press conference, I took a notepad and I made notes. And if I then had to dictate a story from the field over the phone, from a public phone box back to the mm. office, I would write it out did by hand. Did you have the dreams when you were in the public phone box and you'd forgotten everything that you said? No, no that was me. my <laughs> dreams are always about being in a studio just like this with no, no scripts. No clothes on. Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm dressed. What are you talking about? No, this, that was about. my dream. I had no script and nothing on. Do you ever have that? That was a call. No, thank called, God, because it, it sounds horrifying. It is awful. I might tonight, it's now that you've brought dream. it up. <laughs> it's a bulletin dream that you get. No? No. I've the just... other presenter nightmare is that you've got somebody in the studio and you don't know who they are. Or get, you're interviewing the wrong person. Oh, yeah. That would never happen, would and, it? And, and, and the voice in your head just says, talk to them next. And you go, who the hell are is they? It? Exactly. Three questions. How bad is it? How much worse is it going to get? And what could be done? And what's happening feel? in the north of the country? <laughs> <laughs> All our secrets laid bare on the Monocle Daily, especially mine. Finally, on today's programme, in the late 70s and 80s, there was a new sound sweeping the UK known as two-tone. It was a music which combined traditional Jamaican ska and reggae with punk rock and new wave elements. The result was a massive watershed moment in British culture, and this movement is the subject of a new book. Musician-turned-author Daniel Rachel joined Monocle's Andrew Muller in Midori House to talk about his award-winning book, Too Much Too Young, The Two-Tone Record Story. Andrew began by asking Daniel when two-tone music entered his life. As a schoolboy, it hit our playground like a tsunami. (laughs) Suddenly, everybody was wearing black and white and talking about madness and the specials. And Selector and I just got swept up in that, really. I remember having to sing for schoolhouse points, 
too much to young. Somebody <laughs> within, somebody had the lyrics in a magazine and we all caterwailed our way through it. As the book makes clear, though, and I think it is forgotten what a huge, huge whoop for a brief period two-tone was. It, it had this extraordinary period of dominance of the British charts and of British popular culture. And in many ways, it was more successful than punk, certainly mm. commercially in record sales. And at this time, I mean, different movements are moving very fast, rapidly. But two-tone from really its first single Gangsters in the summer of 79 through to the breakup of the specials Ghost Town 81, two years is really going some for a for tribal youth movement. And they do pack a lot into that two years. And, and it was, as the book makes clear, about much more than the music or even much more than the clothes. And they, they, <laughs> they did look fantastic. There was also this agenda, implicit or explicit, of, of racial equality. Many of the groups, most of the groups, in fact, had mixed memberships of, of, of white and black musicians, which was not at all common at the time. But was that something that Two-Tone, and especially its, its prime mover, Jerry Dammers, who we will come to shortly, set out to do? Was was that his mission or did the label and the bands kind of get saddled with that just because that's who they happen to be? No, I mean, Jerry founded the specials, founded Two Term Records, and he set out to form the specials as a, the image of Rock Against Racism, which was black and white musicians in a band together making a political statement. And although there had been earlier bands with mix of cultures within their groups, never before as a political statements, unless maybe you go to America and look to Slime Family Stone. So yes, specials, certainly. I think more of a coincidence with the beat and just it fell that way with the selector. But that became an important statement. Two-Tone was saying to a youth, you can come together when on the streets there's literally the National Front, the British movement, there are forces, right-wing forces, trying to advocate keeping Britain white. And Two-Tone stood against that. And it stood against many other things. It stood for anti-sexism and it tried to put forward agenda for women, particularly Pauline Black mm-hmm. in The Selector, Rhoda Dacker in The Body Snatchers singing a song, The Boiler, which is explicitly a spoken word song about rape. And it was also addressing class because many of the musicians within Two-Tone were upper class, Jerry was middle class, working class, and the audience likewise was across. So all of these areas were looking and reflecting street and social political issues of the day. Jerry Dammers from the specials and the the head honcho of Two-Tone is the extraordinary figure at the heart of this story. What eventual read did you get on his character? What I'm wondering basically is where does a young man from Coventry in the late 1970s summon the nerve and the self-belief to think, not only am I going to form a band, I'm going to form a record label Mm. and we are absolutely going to stand British popular culture on its head. Yeah, the whole thing speaks extraordinarily highly of a man with great vision. Jerry was born in India, only lived there for six months. His father was of the church. He went via Scunthorpe, Leeds, Nottingham, ended up in Coventry. But every time I quiz Jerry on his anti-racist stance, which, of course, we must remember, ends up with the song Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. the, the chant, free Nelson Mandela. And that man on stage at Wembley is a free man. And the likes of Whitney Houston, Stevie Wonder singing the song. <laughs> Free, free Mandela. Jerry would always say 
he'd been saying not to be anti-racist. He, d- he doesn't understand anybody. He thinks it's a mental illness to be anti-racist. He <laughs> finds it entirely natural. I mean, he, he, he does give an example in the book where he saw a, a kid of Chinese origin being picked on in school and he just thought it was odious and he just transferred that into a belief. He also saw what was happening in other audiences around bands like Sham 69, The Damned, bands that were attracting right-wing followings. And he definitely felt touring as an unknown musician with the early version of the specials, the Coventry Automatics, that there was an audience ripe that could very easily fall in with these nationalists. And he felt that a movement, rather than just a band, a movement of bands, would make a big impact and speak to an audience and say, come our way. And you have to say that he made a generation believe it was the coolest thing on earth to be anti-racist. Nevertheless, though, as the book also makes clear, there were periods of extraordinary chaos and bewilderment and occasional violence when gangs of clearly, I think, basically extremely confused racist skinheads insisted on attempting to ally themselves to the two-tone bands, despite the fact that what was on stage was a fairly living repudiation of everything the National Front was about. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And the book is full of contradictions. And that's one of the great contradictions that right-wing neo-Nazis would come to the gigs, salute with a Kyle the bands, throw sharpened coins at the black members, not accept the black members, but then be dancing to the scar-infused punk rock disco of, of these bands. And those contradictions are very evident. There's also contradictions within the bands that, that in themselves that, that will enable the success of each of those bands and two-tone as a movement. But inherently within it will be the downfall. On the subject of the downfall, the book does also make clear, and in, in fairness to the people you interview, they're fairly upfront about it, that it wasn't necessarily always a a hive of the most cooperative and amenable personalities you, you could gather <laughs> under one flag. When you talk to them now, and you, you have talked to a lot of the musicians involved in it, how do they look back on this extraordinarily brief but obviously defining interval in their lives. Well, I spoke to near 100 people, which Mm. involved most of the members of each of the bands. And to be honest, most people find it extremely difficult to talk and reflect back because there obviously is the period of great success. But once fame comes into the picture, once money, drugs, all the issues that perhaps have been talking about, class differences, and particularly the example of the selector, which is cultural differences, not just Jamaicans whose parents have been invited to come to the UK by the British government and they're the first, second generation kids, but these are different island cultures who are trying to get on and they, they literally have fights all the way through their career. <laughs> and those and there's arguments in all the bands, the body snatchers, the seven women in the body snatchers, they struggle with the class differences because those differences, the difference between somebody who's had nothing when they've grown up, working class perhaps, who desperately needs things to succeed so they can form a life for themselves and then when they get rewards for it, they grasp it, whereas there's more frivolity perhaps if you're from an upper class background maybe you want to go down a more pop avenue and these arguments and discussions they shared with me and there's also, oddly enough 
an enormous amount of what we now refer to as mental health within mm. two-tone artists. I mean, the obvious example of that is the lead singer of the specials, Terry Hall, who is abused as a schoolboy on a school trip to France, which he eloquently talked about in a Funboy 3 song, Well Fancy That. And his troubles are like many of... Jerry had a, a breakdown within the specials' lifetime, the keyboard player, the selector. There's many, many, many of these people, hence why... They enjoy talking about the music, they enjoy talking about the success, but when they have to talk about the breakdown, they find it extremely hard, if not barriers come up. It is an extraordinary story, and it did, of course, request some enduringly extraordinary music. And to play us out, I'm going to invite you to pick one <laughs> two-tone tune, and not, not to steer you in any particular direction. And I'm just going to say this for the record. Nobody believes me because it just sounds too cool. Literally the first album I ever bought with money I had saved up for was The Specials by The Specials. <laughs> but, but, but you pick what you like. Absolutely fantastic. Well, I could track from The Specials, first album. Album, which is also the B-side of Message to Redo, which is Nightclub, which you can hear the disco influence on the bass lines, the punk guitar of Roddy Radiation, the punk attitude of Terry Hall, and the, uh, the reggae scar influence coming from the keyboards of Jerry and Limbalon rhythm. <laughs> That was Daniel Rachel, the author of Too Much, Too Young, the two-tone record story, talking to Andrew Muller. Well, that's all the time we have for today's edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my guests, Lizette Raymer and Robin Lustig, and to the producer, Isabella Jewell, and researcher, Naomi Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>